Let's bow together in a word of prayer. Heavenly Father, we bow before you tonight, very conscious of our own need, and recognizing that without you we can do nothing. Lord, we just pray that you will help us to understand and grasp the concept that you want us to know tonight about this devastating habit of responding pridefully rather than responding humbly to your mercy and to your grace. And we would pray right now that you will give us ears that are attentive, hearts that are responsive, eyes that are open to truth. And we pray that as a result of being here tonight, that we will grow in grace and in the knowledge of Jesus Christ, who is our Lord, our Master, the one who rules over our life. And we'll give him the praise, for he's worthy of it. In Jesus' name, amen. Now we are talking about some of these things that are habitual in our spiritual life. Even after we become believers, we find ourselves responding like we used to respond as an unbeliever. And we're convinced that God wants to make a difference in our lives. He's not content or satisfied to leave us foundering. He's not content to merely uh, allow us to drift live a defeated life. He wants us to have victory. He wants us to live in accordance with his word. He wants us to live a supernatural life and testimony before a watching world. And he's made all of the provision that's necessary to deliver us from every habit of every sin. The only thing that's wrong is often we fail to appropriate what God has given us. That's a subject in itself. But in other cases, it is simply a matter of an ingrained habit and without any conscious rebellion or any conscious uh, desire to sin or even conscious, uh, uh, consciousness of a particular measure of lust or anything like that, we, we find ourselves doing what we don't want to do. And the Apostle Paul, of course, speaks of that in Romans chapter 7 where he speaks of the good that I want to do I don't do and the, that which I don't want to do I find myself doing and uh, he, he explains it as being a very frustrating thing and it is. And so what we thought we'd do in this series as God gives us time is uh, talk about some of those things that um, we have negatively in our lives, some of the perils that we face in our Christian lives, some of the habits that we have, and then as well talk about some of the habits we should have, uh, some of the things that uh, we ought to be doing. In some cases they are opposites, um, in other cases uh, they are simply, they simply stand alone. But we want to be talking about these things. So last week we began talking about this habit of responding in pride to various circumstances, and uh, we were supposed to finish that, and we barely got started, so we'll pick up on that tonight, and hopefully be able to finish it tonight, and then we'll, we'll talk about uh, the, the matter of, 
uh, or some of these other things in subsequent nights, trying to spend one evening on each one of them if we possibly can. But pride's a biggie, so we'll spend uh, uh, the evening tonight talking a little more about it. Remember that uh, what we did last week was demonstrate from Scripture uh, that pride really is an attitude of independence. Please, God, I'd rather do it myself. It is whenever uh, you are in a situation uh, and uh, in that situation you feel somehow self-sufficient, you feel that you can do it, that this is one you can handle. In a sense, this is one you can handle without God. You pay, may pay lip service by saying, okay, Lord, we're going to get this one, you know. Um, but um, it's an attitude that, that you are not utterly dependent upon God, uh, that somehow there is in you the inherent ability to cope with a particular problem. I guess maybe that's one of the things that bothers me a lot about uh, modern-day counseling. There's so many... Uh, there's so many people that are out there that are trying to teach people how to cope, uh, trying to teach people how they can, how they are okay, and uh, so on and so on and so on. You go on and on and on with the list. Everybody's got their own technique. Uh, God's Word says we're not okay. God's Word says our heart is deceitful above all things and desperately wicked. God's Word says you can't. Every time you think you can, you can't. He that thinketh he standeth, take heed, lest he fall. Nation of Israel's biggest problem was this problem of pride. They thought they could. God says you can't. They says, God, I'm going to prove I can. And every time they did, they failed. That's pride. You see, there's a lot of uh, uh, pumping up of, of human pride going on in the world today. And a lot of Christians have bought this rot. The fact is, the scripture makes it very clear that you are absolutely, utterly helpless without God. I, I, I'd, like to, uh, I'd like to illustrate that to the whole world, if I could. If I could somehow just have the ability to uh, uh, tell the world, now I'm going to prove to you uh, that you need God, desperately need God. And what I'm going to do is we're going to take away all of God's air that you breathe. That's God's, remember. That's not yours. You didn't do anything. There's not a single thing you have ever done. You may have worked hard to try to clean up the air as an environmentalist and uh, all of that, but the air itself obviously isn't yours because you didn't do anything to produce it, right? All right, let's just take all the air away uh, for about an hour and let you just hold your breath because there's nothing out there to breathe. You say, well, that's ridiculous. Everybody needs air. Everybody needs God. It's a small illustration of how much we need God. If we need God breathing air, need God for rain, need God for, for this and that and the other, then we need God for everything. God's word declares, you need me. And if man tries to live independent of that, God in his mercy does not re remove all of the things that he gives. Otherwise, the earth would have perished a long time ago. Man would have perished. He couldn't have lasted. Because all God had to do is remove the air from this atmosphere. All he would have had to do was no longer send rain on the earth. All he'd have to do is say, okay, no more sunshine. Well, it'd get pretty chilly without that big star beaming down on top of us. See what I mean? We need God. 
You realize that, that if the moon were even adjusted a little ways, the earth, first of all, would flood, and then it would recede, leaving nothing but the remains behind. It would flood. And if, you see, the moon controls the floods. And if there was no moon, no waxing and waning of the moon and all of the rest, there would be, there would be devastation. They tell me that, uh, that, that if, if the earth were just tilted just a little bit more, the earth would alternately freeze and burn up. It will get up every morning and you burn to a crisp. Go to bed at night and you freeze to death every day. But God put it just the right angle. And the scripture tells me that it is Jesus Christ who sustains that pattern. It's Jesus Christ who holds that in position. And if man thinks he can run the show, you know, if I were God, that's why I'm not God, say I don't have enough mercy. If I were God, I'd say, go ahead, try. See what I mean? Now, human pride is such that it's ingrained into our life. And then we have the bombardment of the media and the, all the things that we read, all of the books that are being written and all of the rest. We have all of this beaming down on us and beating us into the ground saying you, you, can't, be, you can't be a dependent creature. You've got to be independent. And man begins to believe that. So I think it's important that we, we recognize that this, is the, this brought about the fall of man. This brought about the fall of Satan. We talked all, about all of those things last week. Pride has no business, no room for pride in the life of the believer. And when you respond pridefully, it is sinful. And you need to confess this sin. You need to recognize this sin. You need to deal with it right head on because pride is devastating. And it's the basis of all other sin. Now, pride really is a perversion of God's intent when he made man in his image. And Nietzsche's idea of the self-made man and the rugged individualist, which pervades American culture, by the way, today, really was at the root of Nazism. Uh, the idea that, there is a, uh, that, that we are all independently uh, able uh, to accomplish the goals that we set before ourselves and that we can produce actually a super race of supermen that say, I can long enough that they begin to believe it. And um, the, the Nietzsche philosophy um, brought forth the idea that God is dead and that man is simply loosed. When he suddenly comes for freedom to realize that really God doesn't exist, that God is unable to help or hinder in any way, shape, or form. Then man becomes tossed to and fro with no standard, no absolutes, and no hope. But nevertheless, that, though that's the outcome of Nietzsche's philosophy, nevertheless, it, it, it is a, so much a part of our culture and thinking, so much a, much a part even of our churches, uh, that it scares, it scares you when you begin to examine it in the light of Scripture. The very essence of sin is pride, and it's an attitude that man is autonomous, that he doesn't need God, that's on the, the vertical level, that man doesn't need God, on the horizontal level, that man doesn't need man. In other words, I am sufficient in myself, I can get along without you, 
instead of realizing that every person that God brings into your life is really a divine encounter, and to some degree or another, we are dependent upon each other. That's why we read in in Ecclesiastes, uh, two are better better than one, because if one falls, there's another to lift him up, and so on. A threefold cord is not easily broken, so on. So it's the idea that we do need God, that's humility. The idea that we do need uh, one another, that's humility. And that's the atmosphere and the attitude in which we are to live. Thayer, the Greek scholar and the writer of the, probably the most definitive of the, of the lexicons, defines pride as an insolent and empty assurance which trusts in its own power and resources and shamefully despises and violates divine laws and human laws. It's an independent attitude. I can do it. I can do it without you. I can do it without God. Now, I need to just take a moment and help you to realize that the Word of God does not deny the importance of a healthy self-respect. There's nothing wrong with recognizing achievement. Uh, there's nothing wrong with, with uh, having uh, made something that is lovely, um, uh, displaying it. And uh, the, the thing that I would say is that the difference between uh, healthy self-esteem and pride is that healthy self-esteem will uh, accomplish something and uh, give God the glory. Whereas pride will claim that you did it independent. I did it. I did it by myself. I didn't need anybody else. I didn't need God. I didn't need you. You see, that is pride. And it all depends on the on the attitude that you have toward other contributing factors. The fact is, you know, that if you do anything, you did not do it by yourself. I'm thinking strictly in the human sense. If a man, uh, quote, single-handedly passes his football team uh, to a victory, I got news for him. He didn't do it alone. Because the other 11 guys would have made mincemeat out of him if, if the other fellows weren't playing at all. And they talk about, he did it single-handedly. Boy, oh boy. Now there is a prideful statement. He did nothing single-handedly. We had a football player one time, thought he was pretty hot. He was quarterback. And we decided one day, those of us who were on the line, we decided he needs a lesson. So we were playing scrimmaging against the, the C team, you know, the, uh, the team that, <clears throat> the, that were bench warmers. And uh, we just let everybody through. And we didn't block. And guess what? The quarterback came pleading after about three plays like that, pleading to us to make our blocks. He said, I can't do anything without you guys. Well, that's what we wanted to hear. Once we heard that, then we began to block again, and we did fine. But you see, you've got to understand that, there, that, that in life we're constantly facing situations like that where there's a fine line between self-esteem which indicates that, there, that God has given me abilities and that those abilities ought to be used. And when they are used in the right way, in the right spirit, they can accomplish something that has meaning, something that has value, because God has allowed that his creatures could do that. There is, in that sense, 
a, an accomplishment that can be done because we're made in the image of God. But where it becomes pride is when that individual says, I did it all by myself. I didn't need God. At least that's his attitude, that he did it apart and independent of God. And, of course, any time a man does something like that, not only independent of God, but in rebellion against God. The Apostle Paul, after his great vision, caught into the third heaven, and he saw uh, the, the things that he couldn't even utter. It must have been a marvelous experience, uh, because he tells us a lot of marvelous things in Scripture. But whatever happened in that experience, uh, he, he says, it's not lawful that I tell. I can't tell you. There's no way that human words could even describe it, probably. And he said, of such an one, I'll boast. In other words, in the sense that I have been caught up into the third heaven, it is something that is, that is above any other kind of human experience. And it is something of which I will glory and boast the rest of my life. There will never be a time where I won't say that was wonderful. But you know, in that same verse, you see, it gives us both sides. That's a healthy self-esteem. God did something special for me, and I ought to tell people about it. You see, that's his attitude. He says, of such a one will I glory, yet of myself I will not glory, but in my infirmities. In other words, I'm not going to boast about Paul. I was that person caught up there and I didn't even know myself. This was something, there was a transfiguration experience in some way that was beyond me. Something I could never have seen or accomplished apart from God. And as I was caught up into that, I, I, I just, I rejoice in that. I boast in that. I praise the Lord for what, what was done. I would say it's a, it's a part of my frame of reference now that I could never cast off as being no good. But while I boast about that, I'll say it, was, it wasn't because of Paul. I could never boast about Paul. If I've got anything to boast about, I'll boast about my infirmities. I'll boast about the fact that God counted me worthy to suffer for his sake. So you see, pride is the sin of the unbeliever. It's the sin of the unbeliever that says, I can make it. I'll take my chances. I don't want to come God's way and do things God's way. That's an independent spirit. But when we become believers, after we've accepted the Lord Jesus Christ as personal Savior, we have already developed an attitude of sinful pride. It's ingrained into our being. So much so that John had to warn his readers to beware of the influence of this world system and the gravitational pull of our sinful desire, and the deeply ingrained pride of life. The pride of life. Whenever you do something pridefully, you do it as a habit. Now, you can do it as an act of rebellion. But generally speaking, there's a quick response of pride. Somebody says something and you defend yourself. Why? Because you're afraid of what they'll think of you. I wonder sometimes how we could develop a, a, a device that would ring a bell in our ear every time we do that and remind us that the thing that's important is not our reputation. Even Christ became, became, uh, became one of no reputation for us. 
And here we want to maintain our reputation rather than just being concerned about God's glory, being concerned about what God thinks, being concerned about what pleases God. And remember that when we are prideful, God resists us. We have the resistance not only of others, but of God himself. Now, to refute that pride of life, God makes it clear that we're helpless without him. Take your Bibles and turn with me to a few passages of Scripture. All right, I've got seven here. We want to go through them rather quickly, beginning in John 15. John 15, verse 5. Story of the vine and the branches. It is a story of dependence. It is a picture of dependence. There's no way that the branch can exist apart from the vine. Notice who the vine is. I am the vine, Christ says. You are the branches. He makes it very clear that if a branch is separated from the vine, what do you have? You have death rather than life. The life that allows the vine to produce the fruit is from the vine. You cannot take the branch off of the vine and have the, vine, uh, have the branch be productive. The vine will produce other branches, and those branches intimately connected to the vine, abiding, staying close by, permanent residence in the vine, those, those, uh, that uh, uh, branch will produce fruit. And if it's a healthy branch, it'll produce more fruit. It can even produce much fruit. But it's the life of the vine that gives life to the branches. You go pull down the, or cut, cut off the uh, branch off of your apple tree, let it lay on, your, on the ground, and the green apples on that branch will still be green, but now they'll be shriveled up. Uh, months later, it'll never grow to maturity and, and ripen. The, 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 the branch is absolutely useless, except as a conduit of life. All right? Now, in case you miss it from the language of horticulture, it says in verse 5, I am the vine, you are the branches. He who abides in me and I in him, he bears much fruit. For apart from me, you can do how much? Now, could, could words be ever more clear? The fruit can mean a number of things. Scripture speaks of fruit as being holiness. Uh, it speaks of fruit as uh, the fruit of your labor in winning souls to Christ. It speaks of uh, the fruit of sharing, that which you give in an offering on a Sunday morning. It speaks of the fruit in the sense of reward, that which will yet be coming when God gives us reward at the Bema seat. It speaks of... Uh, Fruit as being character, love, joy, peace, long-suffering, gentleness, faith, goodness, meekness, self-control. Uh, that's, that's a part of it. Uh, it speaks of fruit as praise, the fruit of your lips being given to God. In the book of Isaiah, it, in the in 13th chapter of Hebrews, it tells you that you're to, you're to give glory to God, give praise to God, even the fruit of your lips. In Isaiah, it says, I, the Lord, create the fruit of the lips. Just in case anybody thinks, well, that's something I produce all by myself, is praise to God, the fruit of my lips. No, no, God says, I create the fruit of the lips. Uh, service for the Lord is sometimes spoken of as fruit. The, the, the carpos all the way through 
the, the New Testament speaks of various aspects of fruitfulness in the life of a believer. And uh, whereas the works of the flesh are, are spoken of as works, that's something you do do, right? Murder, wrath, anger, all of those good things, uh, they're produced by the energy of the flesh. That's what you can do. But this is what God can do when you are the conduit through which he can work. Without me, you can do nothing. No fruit. Works, yes. Apart from God's help, you can murder, you can steal, you can lie. You see, those are the things you can do. But as far as producing anything that has any value, that takes the Holy Spirit's work in our heart and life. The life of Christ flowing through us. We're just useless branches. That ought to keep us humble, right? He didn't say, without me you can't do as much. He says, without me you can do nothing. Precisely nothing. Second Chronicles chapter 20, verse 12. Second Chronicles 20, 12. In this text, you have that, that uh, great battle. Jehoshaphat against Moab and Ammon. And in this text, you have a declaration of dependence on the part of the King Jehoshaphat. O oh, our God, wilt thou not judge them? Listen to this. For we are powerless before this great multitude who are coming against us. Nor do we know what to do. But our eyes are upon thee. Our eyes are upon thee. Without me, you can do nothing. Psalm 127, verse 1. Psalm 127, verse 1. This is the psalm of the home. The psalm of the home. Unless the Lord builds the house, the word house is the word that is used in the Old Testament for the house and the home. The home is generally spoken of. As for me and my house, we will serve the Lord. He wasn't talking about the structure, the house. He was talking about the home. All right? Here, unless the Lord builds the home, they labor in vain who build it. Same principle for a city. Unless the Lord guards the city... The watchman keeps awake in vain. Now, it's talking again now about the home. Notice what it says in verse 2. It is vain for you to rise up early. Some people think, if I can just get up earlier in the morning, then I can build the home. Sorry, it doesn't work. Or to retire late. Well, if I just stay up later, spend more time bawling my kids out, then that will build the home. No, I'm sorry. Getting up earlier, staying up later, will never build the home. To eat the bread of painful labors, maybe if I work harder. If I really work at it, maybe then we can have a fine, upstanding home. Sorry. He gives his beloved, even in his, he gives to his beloved, even in his sleep. God probably is going to get more done in building your home when everybody's asleep and not trying to build their own home 
than he would if you were wide awake helping him. You get in the way. Behold, children are a gift of the Lord. The fruit of the womb is a reward. Like arrows in the hand of a warrior, so are the children of one's youth. How blessed is the man whose quiver is full of them. Six arrows in a quiver. That doesn't say you have to have six children. It just says blessed is the man. Happy is the man that has a quiver full of arrows. They shall not be ashamed when they speak with their enemies in the gates. Marvelous to know that your, ch your children are the heritage of the Lord. But, oh, beloved friend, trying to build the home with the human flesh rather than the Spirit of God is a useless task. You've got to do it God's way. You've got to let him be the boss. You've got to let him be the unseen guest at every meal. You've got to let him be the one who rules, the one who takes care of the needs, the one who teaches. The Word of God ought to be the center of your home. Prayer ought to be the watchword of your home. Your life should be one of constant dependence upon God. One of the big problems you have with raising children is the children say, you know, what about this, Dad? And Dad always has the answers. One of the, one of the most marvelous things for me was I, don't, I cannot remember a time when my dad had the answers. My, I'd say to my dad, well, what about this, Dad? And he'd say, son, come on into the bedroom. Let's talk to God about this. Oh, man, what a heritage. We went in and talked to God about it. And then Dad said, you know, son, I, I think there's a verse in Scripture that talks about this. He'd open up his Bible and he would show me something in terms of principle. And as he would share that with me, I began to realize my dad doesn't have all the answers, but God does. And my dad knows God. And that makes all the difference in the world. That's humility, though. Guess what? My dad knew the answer in the first place because he'd talked to God about that same thing before. But he didn't want to give this little boy the impression that it was dad who had the answers. Rather, he wanted him to understand that God had the answers. If I wanted to argue, let me argue with God. See? Except the Lord build the home. They labor in vain that build it. How about Jeremiah chapter 10? Jeremiah chapter 10. I better hurry. I'm going to spend the third week on this. Jeremiah 10, 23. I know, O Lord... That a man's way, boy, this is a revelation. Underline this verse. I know, O Lord, that a man's way is not in himself, nor is it in a man who walks to direct his steps. I can't do it, God. Man can't do it. It's got to be God. How about John chapter 3? John chapter 3. This is a little verse tucked away, you know, there with all the goodies in John 3. And a lot of times people miss this verse. Okay? They're talking about John the Baptist. And uh, John answers 
when they're talking, I should say, talking about Christ, the disciples of John are worried about the competition. And John answers and says, a man can receive nothing unless it has been given him from heaven. If you didn't get it from heaven, you didn't get it. And therefore, if Christ is ministering, then uh, he, he, got, he didn't, get it from, didn't get it from me, and he didn't get it in and of himself. God somehow has allowed this whole thing. There's the spirit of humility. He said in the next verse, You yourselves bear me witness that I said I am not the Christ, but I've been sent before him. I've declared to you, behold the Lamb of God. He, he, he who is the bride has the bride is the bridegroom, but the friend of the bridegroom who stands and hears him rejoices greatly because of the bridegroom's voice. He says, I'm just the best man at this, this wedding. I'm just the best man. Well, there's an attitude of humility. Christ is the one who is all-sufficient. 2 Corinthians 3, 5. 2 Corinthians 3, 5. Not that we, Paul speaking of himself in the ministry of the new covenant, not that we are adequate in ourselves to consider anything as coming from ourselves, but our adequacy is from God, who also made us adequate as servants of a new covenant. Not of the letter, but of the Spirit, for the letter kills and the Spirit gives life, and so on. He goes talking about the new covenant. He says, look, this isn't something that came out of me. We're not adequate. We're not sufficient. He's the adequate one. Zechariah chapter 4, verse 6. Zechariah. Chapter 4, verse 6. Then he answered and said to me, This is the word of the Lord to Zerubbabel, saying, Not by might, nor by power, but by my spirit, says the Lord of hosts. What's accomplished was not accomplished by the will of man, whether it's salvation, the writing of scripture, the giving forth of prophecy, the use of spiritual gifts in the early church or in the church today, no matter what is done that is ultimately to the glory of God, rating as gold and silver and precious stones, all of it is from God or it is wood, hay, and stubble. There's sort of a sort of a thinking. Let's see if I can recreate this mentally for you. First of all, God says he will not share his glory with another. He that glorieth, let him glory in the Lord. All the glory belongs to him. Rightfully, he gets all of the credit for anything good that's been accomplished. Every good gift, every perfect gift comes from the Father, comes from above, from the Father of all lights, with whom there's no variableness, neither shadow of turning. He gets all the glory, right? And he cannot share that glory in, in the sense of giving it away to someone else. He can, we share it because we're in Christ. And we'll share it ultimately because we're in Christ. But that glory belongs to him. It's inherently his, right? Now, if then, when I accomplish something, and I do it, really do it, myself, with my own strength, my own power, my own brains, 
the whole thing, then theoretically I could walk into the presence of God and I could say, God, this is one you get no credit for. I get it. But all of the glory belongs to him. So therefore what God actually does is he sends his Holy Spirit, third person of the Trinity, to indwell our lives. It's God who works in us both to will and do of his good pleasure so that when something is accomplished, who does it? The Holy Spirit. The vine, the branches, Christ. Representing the person of the Holy Spirit. So if I do something right, it's the Holy Spirit within me that accomplishes that using my body as a conduit, using my, my vocal cords, using my hands, using my feet as members of his body, he the head, I the, the part of the body, you see. And it is yet the Holy Spirit who accomplishes those things, not by might nor by power, but by my spirit, saith the Lord of hosts. Now, if God the Holy Spirit did it only using me as an instrument, who gets the glory? God gets the glory. So that no flesh will glory in his presence. But when we get to heaven, here you have the most marvelous thing, or let me say right, first of all, right here on earth. When God is glorified, everything is right. And when everything is right, there's blessing. Right? God glorified blessing. So I get blessing right now. Now step into the eternal scene. In eternity, if, if on earth, when God gets the glory, everything is right, think of what is going to be in heaven. So when I get to heaven and God gets all of the glory, ultimately he will because every knee will bow and every tongue will confess. He will get all of the glory. And when he gets all of the glory, everything will be right. And because I am in him, I will share in the marvel of that glory for all of eternity. And who is the greatest benef uh, benefactor from all of this? I am. It is to my advantage to glorify God in everything I do. Because ultimately, it comes back to me because of my union with Jesus Christ. But you see, there'll be no boasters in heaven. There's no way I'm going to walk up to God and say, God, now, I know that 90% of what I did in my ministry at Valley Church, I did. In your name, with your character at stake, in the power of God's Holy Spirit. But there's a 10% here that I'm going to bring into heaven that's mine, all mine. And God said, well, fine. You got some nice wood some nice hay and some nice stubble there. And all that was done in my, to my glory is gold and silver and precious stones. And uh, what we do here is we pass that through the fire to see of what quality it is. Now let's just turn on the fire here and see how your wood, hay, and stubble holds up. Poof. Wait a minute. That, I drugged that all the way to heaven just so I would have a little something in heaven that I could boast about. I said, sorry. No boasting left. You mean all that's left is this gold and silver and precious stones. All that's left is what I did for your glory. All that's left is what the Spirit of God did through me using me as a conduit. That's all that's left. That's all that's left. 
Well, then I have nothing to boast of. God says, welcome to heaven. <laughs> no pride here. No independent spirit. Pride's in the pit. For the countless age of eternity, man will be trying to figure out a way to get out of there so he can do what he wanted to do in defiance of God. And he'll never be fulfilled. He'll never accomplish. Pride. Now, pride is devastating on our Christian life because there is no part of the Christian life that can be lived in the power and the energy of the flesh. No part of it. There's no room for this at all. And I'll be the first to confess that I slip into habits of sinful pride just like you slip into habits of sinful pride. And it's so subtle, just like it was with, with the serpent and Eve in the garden. Very subtle. Oh, it can sound so spiritual. I want to do great things for God, you know. I became convinced a long time ago that that old missionary that I speak of so often was right when he said, God will do far more in you in the Lord's work than he'll ever do through you. God looks down at this meeting tonight, and you know what he's interested in doing? He's interested in shaping this preacher. At the same time, he's interested in shaping each of you. And the interchange of all of the things that happen in life are just knocking off the rough edges, conforming us to the image of Jesus Christ. It's oh so painful sometimes. We'd like to have people think well of us. We'd like to think that we did something. We get a little tired of always saying, praise the Lord for what he did today. We'd like to say, thank you, I did pretty good, didn't I? <laughs> there's no room for that. And if we're willing to be humble enough, dependent enough, weak enough, God can do anything that divine power can do. We've got to get out of the way. That's all there is to it. One of the ways that it helps a bit to deal with pride is understand what pride does to you. Let's talk about that for a few moments. First of all, pride deceives the heart. Over in the book of Jeremiah, chapter 49, Jeremiah 49, in verse 16, it's a prophecy against Edom. Edom, of course, was were the descendants of Esau. And like father, like son, this is an indictment of Esau. And it's, a, it's an indictment of Esau's descendants who were like him. And what God says in verse 15 is, For behold, I have made you small among the nations, despised among men. He put him down a notch, and that's in keeping with what it says both in Proverbs and in James and in 1 Peter. 
he that exalts himself shall be abased. All right? Now look at verse 16 then. As for the terror of you, the arrogance of your heart, the pride of your heart, the independent spirit of your heart has deceived you. You know, one of the things about Edom was they had built a mighty fortress in a place called Petra. Petra or Petra, the rose-colored city of the dead. I say Petra because that's the way Dr. Talbot used to say correctly. It's Petra. But Petra or Petra is a, is a fortress. To get into Petra, you have a narrow little gap. And then high cliffs surrounding the city and carved out of the rock are the homes, the houses, the businesses, everything. It's a marvelous thing uh, because of the tensions in the Middle East. It is not easy to get a tour anymore that will go to Petra. Also, Petra is the only thing to see there and it's a long, long trip by bus and uh, it's hardly, it, it's worth it, and yet it's not worth it. I've never been there, so I, I've just talked to some who have, and it's a, it's a terrible, hot, torrid trip. But they still do make uh, archaeological ex, uh, excavations and so on there. But Petra was, was a city that was a major city of Edom, and they thought that because it only took three men to defend the city, three men could stand off an army. There was no way they had to come through here single file. And there was no way that uh, an army could uh, get through there without being killed. And because of that kind of security, they thought they would never fall. But they did. And you see, they were, their pride had deceived their heart. Belshazzar, in the book of Daniel, was, uh, uh, was, was so sure they could never penetrate the walls of Babylon that he was eating, him, uh, he was eating and drinking himself drunk using the vessels uh, from the uh, temple of God in Jerusalem. And uh, that night, uh, Darius the Mede uh, decided that he was going to uh, conquer Babylon. And uh, he uh, dreamed up a, a way they had an aqueduct going right through the city. He dammed it up on each end so that the water could no longer flow through. And it, it drained out, and they walked across dry land into the city of Babylon. The, the city of Babylon fell so quietly, it was three days later before many of the residents knew that the city had gone into the Medo-Persian Empire. That's how quiet it was. Hardly a sound. They took the city. Their pride deceived them. Pride has a way of deceiving the heart so that we think that we can do something. We think we can get away with it. We think that, that, that uh, nobody will know or we think uh, that, that we're safe on this one. But it doesn't work that way because pride deceives. Secondly, it hardens the mind. I'm going to have to give these a little quicker here. Daniel 5.20. 
But when his heart, this is Nebuchadnezzar, when his heart was lifted up and his mind hardened in pride, he was deposed from his kingly throne and they took his glory from him. That was when he went out and ate grass like the ox. It hardens the mind. Thirdly, it brings contention. Proverbs 13.10 Only by pride cometh contention. That's why we have fights in churches and all of the rest of it. See that over in Stockton? The, the pastor that was arrested for shooting one of the deacons? He undoubtedly thought, who needs this deacon, you know? Pride. Independent spirit. Okay? Number four, it puts us in bondage. Puts us in bondage. Psalm 73, verse 6, Therefore pride compassed them about as a chain. Pride compasseth them about as a chain. It puts you in bondage. Five, it brings men to destruction. Proverbs 16:18 Pride goeth before destruction and a haughty spirit before a fall. Number 6 It stirs up strife. Proverbs 28:25 He that is of proud heart stirreth up strife. Then look at the contrast. But he that putteth his trust in the Lord shall be made fat. In other words, blessed. Number seven. It heads the list of that which is an abomination to God. Sixth chapter of Proverbs gives that long list of seven things that God hates. A proud look is right at the start of that list. Proverbs six seventeen. Not only that, but in uh, Proverbs 16.5, everyone that is proud in heart is an abomination to the Lord. Though hand join in hand, he shall not be unpunished. In other words, he may stack the deck against God. He may join with a mighty army, but he's not going to win going to fail. God hates pride. It's abomination. Number eight. Causes stumbling. It causes stumbling. Jeremiah 50 verse 32 says, And the most proud shall stumble and fall, and none shall raise him up. And I will kindle a fire in his cities, and it shall devour all round about him. There's Jeremiah giving us what God has said. Thus saith the Lord, the most proud shall stumble. The man who thinks he's independent can make it on his own. Sooner or later will fall. Number nine, it brings shame. Proverbs 11, verse 2. When pride cometh, then cometh shame. But with the lowly is wisdom. 
So pride is a devastating thing. We can't afford to have it in our life, even sometimes slipping into that habit of pride. Well, what's the solution to pride? Let me give it to you real quickly here and let you study this on your own a bit. The key and the secret to controlling the habit of pride in your life is to become consciously God-dependent. That's in relationship to God. And at the same time, be consciously dependent on others, realizing the inner workings of the body of Christ. The whole study the body of Christ would be good at this point to understand the one another concepts in Scripture, some 70 of them in all, though some are repeated, uh, over and over again, you know, depend on one another, one another, one another, one another, pray for one another, minister to one another, receive from one another, so on and so forth. It's a very important aspect of the Christian life. But primarily, the idea of being God-dependent. And I want you to look at James 4, verses 6 through 10. James chapter 4, verses 6 through 10. I'm going to give this to you in rapid-fire motion, just so that you have it in your memory and you can begin to work in this area. First of all, let me read the verses. But he gives, God gives, a greater grace Therefore, it says, God is opposed to the proud. The word antitasso means to set a ba- set, be set in battle array against. God stands like an army against you whenever you are proud. That's a good motivation for not being self-dependent, right? God is opposed to the proud, but gives grace to the humble. Submit, therefore, to God. Notice the therefore. Whenever there's therefore, be sure you know what it's there for. It's tying this whole thing together, all right? Submit, therefore, to God. Resist the devil, he will flee from you. Draw near to God, and he will draw near to you. Cleanse your hands, you sinners. Purify your hearts, you double-minded. Be miserable and mourn and weep. Let your laughter be turned to mourning and your joy to gloom. Humble yourselves in the presence of the Lord, and he will exalt you. Now, follow these points, if you will, as you go right through through the text. Number one, God sets himself against the proud. Remember, if God be for us, who can be against us? How many like that verse? God be for us, who can be against us? Isn't that a good verse? How do you like this verse? If you're proud, God's against you. And if, to paraphrase, if God be against you, who in the world can be for you? See what I'm saying? God says... I am against you. You, you. you can gloat if you want to when you go through those, those prophecies in the book of Ezekiel where God speaks and says, I am against you. I am against you, Judah. I am against you, Israel. I am against you, Egypt. I am against you, Syria. What was the problem? They were all proud. You look at the text, you see it. They rose up and proud. They said, they said, God, get off my back. I'll do it my own way. They did it their own way. God says, I'm against you. You want God for you or you want God against you? Well, I don't know about you, but I want God for me, all right? All right? So the first one is God sets himself against the proud. Secondly, God gives grace to those that depend on him. His, 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 his conduit of grace pours grace constantly upon you. He gives grace to those who depend on him. Number three. 
Therefore, there are some logical steps. God's against you if you're proud. God gives grace if you're humble. So there's some logical steps. What are they? Well, first of all, yield to God. If you want more on that, Romans chapter 6 tells you about it. Same thing is in uh, Romans chapter 12, verse 1 and 2. First thing is yield to God. Yielding to God, presenting your body a living sacrifice, same word. Paradidomai, to give over, to hand over, to put on deposit, to throw in, in constant uh, uh, or, or in, in complete uh, subservience to God. Yield yourself to God. James chapter uh, 4 verse 7 is a, is a dynamite reminder of how this will overcome pride. So you yield yourself to God. That's the first thing. Secondly, resist Satan. Refuse to capitulate. Utterly refuse to capitulate. Utterly refuse to trust your own desires. Trust in the Lord with all your heart and lean not unto your own understanding. Don't capitulate. Next, draw near to God and He will draw near to you. What a promise. How do you draw near to God? Well, prayer, Bible study, meditation on His Word, etc., etc., etc. Then, here's the next one. Keep on confessing sin. Keep on confessing sin. Now don't think that you can just come to the Lord and say, Lord, I agree with you that I have pride in my life and I confess that pride to you. I agree with you that it's sin. And then go on being prideful. If you have an attitude for a moment of independence from God, you need immediately to look to the Lord and say, Lord, I did it again. That proves how right you are about me. My heart is deceitful. I am prideful. I agree with you concerning that. God, give me the strength to go on from here to victory. You need to develop the habit of recognizing the habit of pride coming into your life and dealing with it accordingly. And then it says purify your heart. Now, when a person purifies his heart, he is demonstrating a love for holiness. It is not enough for you to have merely the cleansing from sin, but you want to have a permanency of purity in your life. You want to have a holy life. Next thing, hate sin, especially the sin of pride. What does it say about it? Be miserable and mourn and weep. Let your laughter be turned to mourning, your joy to gloom. See? Hate sin. And hate it the way God hates it. Do you realize that when we sin, I don't care how small the sin is, God is grieved. It hurts God when you sin. And you see, we will never really be concerned about sinful things like pride in our life until we get to the place where it breaks our heart the way it breaks God's heart. So let it do that. 
don't harden your heart toward it. Don't just say, well, that's just the way I am. I get so tired of hearing Christian people say that. God doesn't want you to be the way you am. He wants you to be a supernatural person living in the power of His Spirit in victory. So yield to God. Resist the devil. Be absolutely sure that you draw near to God. Remember, prayer is a declaration of dependence. The more time you the more time you spend in prayer, the more you are declaring that you can't do it. Prayer is or should be an act of humility. You know, of course, that there is a false prayer, like the hypocrite standing in the temple saying, I'm glad that I'm not as other men, even as this publican here. That kind of hip- hypocrisy doesn't get further than the ceiling man that was heard of God was the one that said, God, be merciful to me, a sinner. But then, love righteousness and hate sin. And then finally, humble yourself. Just admit that you're in desperate need of God. Second Corinthians 12, the Apostle Paul had seen a revelation of God. There was a danger because of all that he had seen that he couldn't even repeat that he would become proud, proud. And when he had this thorn in the flesh given to him, he admitted there was a messenger of Satan to buffet him. God made it clear that he had given it to him lest he be exalted above measure, lest he begin to think that Paul was something because God had blessed him in this measure. And so when Paul asked the Lord to remove it from him thrice, the Lord finally said, Paul, You've got to understand the facts of life. My grace is sufficient for you. For my strength is made perfect in your weakness. Now the Apostle Paul caught on. And he said, Most gladly, therefore, will I rather glory in my infirmity that the power of Christ may rest upon me. For when I am weak, then am I strong. And you see, the place where God would glory the most is in, in taking you in the place of your greatest weakness and making that your greatest strength. You, you may hear this from me sometimes. I've been tempted to say this a, a great deal. But a person will come up and they'll say, well, you know, winning others to Jesus Christ is all right for someone else, but... But I'm just not made that way. The thing you may hear from me is, do you realize that God probably wants to use you in that very way? Do you realize that that probably is the best place for God to show forth His glory? Because you know you can't witness. Therefore, make yourself available to God Let him use you in that very area. Put yourself in jeopardy, double jeopardy. So you're forced to depend upon him and to share a witness even though you think you can't do it. If you have some weakness, if you have some infirmity, a physical handicap, or or, or something of that sort, remember, 
that just allows the strength of God to be shown in a more glorious way when he can use your weakness. Some of you have told this, and I always, you know, people always get a kick out of this when they hear this because they, you know, they laugh <laughs> as though they don't believe it. I am absolutely scared to death to stand in front of people and talk. There is never a day goes by when I have a speaking engagement, but what I would... Somebody come in and offer me 50 bucks to get lost. I would do it in a minute. Now, it's become over the years a mixed emotion because there's a passion in my heart to share the message. But if I could figure out a way to do it without being here, I would be happy as a clown because I'm really a very shy person. And standing in front of a large group of people. You know what kills me? To stand in front of a group of strangers. People I've never met. I absolutely feel like, my, like I'm a piece of stone. And people laugh about that because, you know, I speak who, who knows how many times a week. And, you know, everybody's obviously got the gift of gab and so on and so forth. You want to see how much gift of gab I have, you take, take away God's power from me put me in a lonely restaurant with a person I've never met before who isn't a good communicator and I'll, I'll get the first three words out and then I'll go cold, stone, deaf, and dumb. And I won't have the foggiest notion what to say. The only reason I can stand in front of people is because I've got a message that's burning in my heart. But not because Paul Steele has any ability. If God uses it, it's God that does it. And I think that that's, again, one of those marvelous things because in the final analysis, when people get to know me the way I am and really begin to understand Paul Steele and all of his weakness, people sit back and marvel that God could do anything with that. And I'm glad. And I hope it never changes. I hope I never suddenly get an oratorial streak where I suddenly have all of these fancy words to say that are going to wow people. Because the minute that happens, if I start using it, the power will be gone. And I'd rather have the power than the poise. But it's God who does it. And God wants to do the same thing with you. But you've got to let him. You've got to let him. He's not going to force it on you. John Oxenham, an old writer, old pastor, wrote these words. A potter playing with his lump of clay fashioned an image of supremest worth. Never was nobler image made on earth than this that I have fashioned of my clay and I of my own skill did fashion it, I from this lump of clay. The master, looking out on pots and men, heard his vain boasting, smiled at that, he said, The clay is mine, and I the potter made. <laughs> As I made all things, stars and clay and men, in what doth this man overpass the rest? Be thou as other men. He touched the image, 
and it fell to dust. He touched the potter, he to dust did fall. Gently the master, I did make them all. All things and men, heaven's glories and dust, who with me work shall quicken death itself. Without me, dust is dust. Let's pray. Who with me works shall quicken death itself. Without me, Dust is dust. Oh God, Satan has duped us into thinking that we've got something to be proud of. Humble us before you. Humble us in the dust and remind us that dust is dust without you. And Lord, if we've done something, may it have been to your glory and your honor. Help us not to be hindered in our Christian life because we're doing something in our own power, in our own strength, in our own flesh. Help us to learn humbly before you that without you, dust is dust. 